0: Hi and welcome back. This is Police Stories Podcast, episode 28. This is a series of short stories about uh, my 28 years in the UK police force. Thanks for coming back, or welcome if this is your first time, and Happy New Year. First one of the new year for me. Hope you had a a good time. So last time we talked about my AFO course, my Authorised Firearms Officers course, the basic two-week course to give you... Um, the initial skills um, pretty much to contain a, a, um, an address. You know, that's that's what it comes down to. It wasn't vehicle stops. It wasn't entering houses. There was none of that. It was a very, very basic go to an address where there's an armed suspect and, and put on a, you know, a containment and then wait for the big boys to arrive, the specialist firearms officers, the SFOs, who would take over and then potentially deal with, suspects either calling them out or maybe entering the property although again as we discussed last week that is very much a, a last resort um, in the UK we'd much rather you know contain an address and call them out <clears throat> excuse me so um, what had happened was I was back on the tutor unit. I'd finished my uh, my two-week course and I was back on the tutor unit uh, and I just carried on my normal policing work. You know, it wasn't a full time job at at that point for me as as having just got my sort of AFO's ticket. So I carried on and I was tutoring. Um I had somebody who was in their first kind of month or so in the job. Um really, really good cop, uh somebody who came became a good friend of mine and uh yeah she was uh, she was a top top cop for sure. Um and I really liked her. She was good fun to work with which definitely makes life a lot easier. Um so we'd gone to this job and it was just a standard domestic. Now, she hadn't been to a domestic, I don't think, before, my colleague. Um, so we were always on the lookout for anything we hadn't dealt with. It didn't matter whether it was, you know, a theft, a criminal damage, uh, a domestic. Then we would take it so that she had one or two of those under her belt. By the time she went on to sort of normal response work, she'd have a, a reasonably broad experience of policing. So as domestic came up. It was very close to the police station, actually, if you I remember. And it was in a traditional um kind of three-story uh terrace building that were a lot of broken into a lot of, sort of bedsits and flats and things now a few sort of dodgy landlords have done strange things with these places so you had like extra bedrooms shoehorned in cupboards and you know you could go into what was like a one or two bed place to find 10 people living there you know because they sublet to their friends who were kipping on the sofa or on the floor or whatever so you never knew quite what you're going to find but this came in as a verbal domestic you know an argument only which Quite often they were. There wasn't always violence involved, but presumably the neighbours had heard, you know, a lot of shouting or whatever, and therefore had called us because they were concerned for for the occupants. So this call came in uh, and, and off we went to it. And we had a quick chat prior to going, as we always did, and just talked through a couple of scenarios, right? The key is with the domestic, we get into the property, we separate the parties, presuming that they're both still there. We separate them, we take them off into a room each and we just say, look, what's happened? You don't want to ask someone what's happened in front of the other person because obviously they may not feel comfortable, um, you know, in, in talking in front of the other person. Um, I mean, you might not get that far. You know, you can pre-plan to a a degree, but obviously you never know what's going to happen. Certainly I've got to the point where we've walked through the door and said, okay, do you want to go and speak to my colleague in there and I'll speak to you in here, mate, you know. And that's as far as you get before he explodes and wants to start fighting with you because, you know, you've dared to come in his house. I mean, it's, it's a very difficult scenario. You can imagine if you're sat at home in your house, your castle, you know, your place of safety, and some random stranger in a fluorescent jacket walks in and starts sort of bossing you around especially if you're drunk and all the rest of it you know domestics are volatile to say the least and obviously you're there chances are they've had an argument between you know partners and therefore um, already their kind of blood is up you know and and, you know they're already up for an argument so I say you walk through the door and you're going to cop it you know they're they're probably some of the most dangerous scenarios domestics actually because you know feelings run so high you can sometimes, you know, reason with people, but domestics, you know, people that are in domestics and drunk, maybe not. So anyway, we go to this call and we're met at the door by um, a female, youngish female, maybe mid-20s or so, uh, Eastern European from what I remember. Um, and uh, we went in and basically it was just her and the address, no one else at all. We've gone in and we said, well, what's happened? Well, my boyfriend, you know, he's um, he's from, I can't remember where he was from now, to be honest with you, it doesn't really matter. Um, they had this big argument, I said, look, we've had a call, you know, I think neighbours or some, you know, some concerned passers-by have heard a big old shouting match in here, so we're just coming in to make sure everyone's all right, really, you know, what's happened, so she went on to tell us that, well, it was just verbal, you know, there was, it wasn't violent or anything like that, we just had this this big old argument, um, and, and he stormed out, you know, and I went, okay, right, so so where's he gone, you know, and she's like, I don't know, Um And that was it. And it was all very matter of fact. It was all very relaxed. And she didn't seem concerned. She wasn't worried at all. I said, well, has this happened before? Um, Occasionally, you know, but only normal sort of, you know, partner stuff. The old argument said this was definitely the worst argument we've ever had. And we were pretty much tying it up. It didn't really seem like there was any offences, no criminal offences such. We were going to take details and almost certainly there'd be a form that we would put in just to say we'd been at the address and that there'd been some arguments between them because that's always useful in the future. You know, this could be the start of an escalation. But we said, are you happy to stay in the address? You know, yes, yes. And of course, it's very important whose name is on the address because if it's his name on the address only, then he's got certain rights and vice versa. But So you're just trying to sort of you know, fact find... Um, and and it you know I left my my colleague there who was with me I said well let's just get the details of of both parties you know so she started taking the details in her notebooks we were still on pens and paper in those days and um and just towards the end of it and she she just calmly and very relaxed and matter-of-factly said um and then you know uh he got the gun out you know pointed the gun at me and and said that he would kill me you know and you're like sorry hang on a sec stop what what you know you didn't mention this before you said it was just a verbal argument oh yeah yeah it was just verbal yeah um but then he he got the gun out you know which i'm pretty sure is real uh, and you know and put it in my face and said that he'd kill me and we both looked at each other, me and my colleague, I'm a bit taken aback. We're like, OK, right, you haven't mentioned this. This does put a different slant on it somewhat. So, OK. And so just to clarify, when you said, and he's gone, I take it he's left the property. And she looked at me sort of like I was mad and was like, no, no, he's not. Um, he's not left the property. And I said, but we've been in this property now for about you know five minutes or so. Um, but as far as we're aware, there's no one else there, and she's not mentioned it at all, so she said that he'd gone. And uh, I said, so so just to clarify, he's not left the property. Where is he then? Where is he now? And in the middle of the room, bizarrely, and this is what I said about dodgy landlords doing weird things, um, there was a set of steps up, but they weren't like stairs. They were steps more like you'd have going into a loft, you know, sort of rickety old wooden stairs, and just almost like a loft hatch in the ceiling, And that was it, you know, and I'd seen him when we came in, but I did presume that it was a loft and, you know, the stairs were down. And she said, well, he went up there. And again, I kind of looked at my colleague who is now getting sort of bigger and bigger eyes. I said, right, so really, you know, I'm I'm stupid here. Break it down for me. Just to clarify, had an argument with your other half. He's got a gun out. He's pointed in your face. He said he's going to kill you. You said he'd left. But in fact, he's left and he's gone up these stairs. So he's just up those stairs and I'm pointing now you know this loft hatch or what looked like a loft hatch he's in the house he's up those stairs he's got the gun he's threatening to kill you she's like yes that's right you know (laughs) just just again like it's the most normal thing in the world you're like okay right um so at which point we got hold of her and said right we need to leave you know um so anyway we took her out with with us you know out of the address um and we put just a you know the loosest sort of containment we could on obviously we're not armed or anything but just purely visual we've gone the other side of the street we've moved our car and we put the female in the car and we've gone up the street a bit but we've made sure we can see the front door the address i've updated the control room who now have very quickly realized this is a firearms incident so um and now what happens is you get TAC ads they're called different things but tactical advisors who will start in conjunction with the duty inspector which may be in the control room or they may be locally will start having a discussion about right what have we got what do we do how do we deal with it who do we need what resources do we need and the first thing that I asked for was another unit down to cover the rear of the property because at least we had a visual containment on so obviously if he comes out with a gun we're not really in a position to deal with it and you just have to do the best you can but that's what happened another unit came down they went round the back we were sat on the front of course the control room and the TACAD are now sitting down together going through this figuring out well we're going to need armed officers so they started the SFOs we've talked about the specialist firearms officers clothes officers in, in a plane car that were coming from sort of headquarters which was about a 45 minute blue runaway at least maybe an hour unfortunately they were dealing with something the other side of where they're normally based. So actually, they were going to be a good hour. Um, so the control room were then looking at who did they have locally that was a county AFO, someone uh, like me, in fact, that and I'd just done the course, obviously. And they said, OK, right, um, we're going to send someone else down to replace you on the visual containment. you uh, go back to the NIC and speak to the, the duty inspector who's back there. So in the time it took for me to get back there, and there was another colleague of mine, because remember what you said, armed officers always need to work in pairs. Um, there was another person who was a county AFO who was on duty, and uh, he'd already been asked to return to the Nick as well. So both of us were heading back for the police station. And I must admit, at this point, as I was driving back, it was very close. As say, about a five-minute drive, I was thinking, this this could actually happen. This could be an armed job, because we're both county AFOS. we're trained, they're going to need to contain that until the SFOs get here. And I was thinking, Christ, you know, I might actually get armed here, you know, and I was actually a little bit nervous about it because it's one thing to do, a course, but to think that actually you're going to be firstly armed and secondly, you know, you could literally be pointing guns at people, that's quite a scary thought, no matter what training you've done, especially for the first time. So we're headed back up and sure enough, as I think I explained last week, and you may need to go back last to last week's episode if you haven't heard it, episode 27, and talk through the process. But basically, at that point, there was some weapons, some police firearms held at the police station, and they were in a safe in the inspector's office. And when a scenario like this came up, county AFOs like myself would be called to go back, and we attended uh, the office with the inspector, who opened up the safe, and then basically he got out the two MP5s, a Heckler & MP5s, 9 millimeter carbine short rifles um, with 30 rounds of ammunition, two fifteen 15-round mags, and he issued them to us. Now, he wasn't an AFO, so he literally just signed the weapons across to us and then said, you know, you've had the training, you're AFOs, I'll leave you to arm up or do whatever you've got to do. So we had a bit of a procedure for this at the time. Now they use what's called unloading bags. They're specialist ballistic bags that you would point the um, the barrel in when you are loading the weapon and making it ready because, uh i.e. cocking the weapon? Because if you were to have an ND, a negligent, negligent, it's easy for me, so negligent discharge at that point, the ballistic bag would contain that uh, that bullet effectively. It wouldn't then travel through the floor and hit your sergeant in the head. Um, much as he might have been frustrating at times, but, um, you know, it would contain that. So that was a safe way to do it. But we didn't have that at that time. That wasn't sort of thought of or any of the procedures. So we basically uh, put the magazines in the weapons, cocked the weapons, safety catches on safe, and that was us loaded, made ready. Um, we had a quick conflab between us about what we were going to do. And like I said last week, um, we would have to split ourselves probably um and and go sort of front and back of the property with an unarmed officer each who would become our sort of unarmed option because again like we discussed last week you need that option um that should someone come out but doesn't present a firearms threat then you need to be able to deal with them so we went down to the property and uh when we looked at it uh it was very difficult uh to contain with two of us even with unarmed cops so we had the choice of we either separate and the problem is because it was a long row of terraces, if something happens out the back um, and either me or my colleague are at the back of the address, it was going to take us, you know, kind of five minutes at least to get round to support them, which wasn't ideal. Um, so we kind of put this decision up uh, to the inspector. We were pretty happy um, that perhaps we should stay together on the front of the address as the most likely um way of leaving the property because in actual fact having spoken to the woman further she said that they never locked, they never left the property through the back door and that it was locked and there was some issue around the key you know it was very stiff and they couldn't get the lock to undo I mean very unsafe in terms of fire or whatever but really helped us on this day because it very much narrowed down his options and he was most likely to come out the front of the address. So the decision was made between us and the inspector and the sergeants and what have you and their tactical advisor that we would stay at the front of the property, the two armed officers together. We both had MP5s, but we had to nominate one of us to stay with the firearm and the other one to become the sort of less than lethal option to deal with this armed threat should it present itself. And again, we, we took up a position on the corner of the the street. It was a street opposite um we were sort of tucked away out of sight on the corner, but so that we had a really good diagonal view um, of the, uh, the front door. Now, we obviously, we were covering it as best we could, but should he come out of the property down the stairs? There was a series of steps, about a dozen steps from the front door down to the street level. Had he come out of the property and turned left, he'd have sort of been walking away from us, which is never ideal. But there was unarmed cops down the end of that street. I mean, it was a mess, quite frankly, because had he walked towards the unarmed officers, we'd have been behind him. It would have been very difficult to stop him. He's walking towards unarmed cops. But, you know, hey, this is is what you have to do. You have to adapt. You have to do what you can. Of course, it wasn't ideal just to have the two of us. Uh, My colleague had been um, trained for about, I think, a year maybe, but he'd never had an armed job because they really were quite unusual. Um, So for me to get deployed as an AFO within sort of two weeks of the course... Was I suppose good and bad? It, it got it out of the way, um, but you know he wasn't exactly looking at me as an as an experienced armed officer, um, and I certainly thought of him as the, as the senior cop in that respect. Um, but anyway, we had a discussion and we decided that I would stay with the firearms, I would keep the armed cover on, and that should he come out, um, and then you you decide kind of ideally who's who's going to do the talking, uh, because you need one sort of talking. And, and one, um, you know, keeping that arm cover on. But having said that, for me, on the occasion, we talked about it and we decided I would also do the verbals. I would do the shouting at him um, should he come out. Um, because the problem is, if my colleague who's unarmed and I'm pointing my MP5 at him, he's shouting, you know, do this, do that. As, an, as the armed cop, I might not want him to do that. It might not be clear what is going to happen. So I said to him, look, I'll do the verbals if he comes out. And we talked through a few scenarios. I said, I'll do the verbals, I'll do the arm cover, and I will talk you forward and you will you know, have baton drawn because I don't think there was tasers at that point or spray. It was just a baton, that was it. I said, you'll do the unarmed stuff, you'll go forward and do the handcuffing. And even that is um, quite uh, specific because obviously you're trying to keep arm cover on, but now you've got your colleague walking right up to this person, putting hands on, and the very obvious thing without thinking is that you would lean across him and put cuffs on, but what you're doing is putting yourself between me and him. Now, at that point, if he produces a firearm and I have to sort of engage that threat um obviously my colleagues in the way so again during the course one of the things you really practice is kind of handcuffing at arm's reach so that literally just your arm is out handcuffing this person without getting yourself in the line of fire and there's also issues about blue on blue in terms of other cops because cops who have never done any sort of arm training and, and not really thought about it we've got cops now on all the streets surrounding but if he's walking away from me and I'm having to point my MP five at him as he's walking away, he could be walking directly in line with another cop. Now that's a nightmare scenario. You know, if you've done some arm training, you'd be very aware of this and you'd probably move and cut down the angles where you could so that there, there wasn't this this blue on blue, you know, you pointing a gun at your colleague. Um but an unarmed cop, especially a new one, probably wouldn't think about this and wouldn't move. So all this is going through your head. It's 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 dark. It was, I don't know, I think it was like eleven o'clock or midnight, or something it's quite late. Uh, I and mean, the good thing was there wasn't many people about, although obviously now we were starting to get a little bit of attention because um it was the days before where people sort of pulled out a mobile phone and filmed everything, but certainly you know, people had noticed it was quite a sort of populated area. There was two cops with guns outside, which was a big deal, you know, in those days. Um, so we had a lot of people sort of hanging out windows, having a look, seeing what we were doing and stuff. Anyway, we discussed these sort of various scenarios and what we would do. Um, his description was quite specific. Um, so we were pretty happy um, who what he looked like. We'd seen a photo as well that the girlfriend had shown us. Um, but of course, anyone coming out of that property um would have to be at least spoken to us now we really didn't want to even point guns at someone you know who wasn't our man but equally how do we know sort of thing um as I say the description was quite specific um so uh anyway we we talked through some scenarios we sat there and we waited now we fully expected for nothing to happen whatsoever um and uh that the SFOs would arrive, you know, and they would take over the containment, and then we we might be asked to assist, you know, with the containment or whatever. But basically, we wouldn't have to do anything, and that's very much what the thinking was. So it was almost textbook in that we'd been there about I don't know ten minutes outside the address on this corner, just keeping an eye out. We had a, a visual containment, and there was more cops on a sort of bit more an outer cordon with that with that visual containment on as well, making sure he didn't get out any other way. We thought we had it sewed up, but like I say um and that we wouldn't have to do anything so 10 minutes in sure enough the front door opens which we can see and out comes boulders brass without a doubt our man like I say his description was very um you know unique uh and he came down the stairs uh and we we kind of looked at each other and we couldn't believe it oh no it's coming up we're gonna have to do anything so we basically both of us popped out of cover we were behind hard cover which is something like brick masonry something hard that's going to stop a round basically um, as opposed to visual cover like a car for example which yes you can hide behind but you know virtually any round is going to pass through a car door or anything so it's not really hard cover it's more visual cover and put the challenge in because he came out it was clearly him and he knew we were out there he'd had a look out the window he knew there was sort of cops out everywhere um, I'm not sure he realized there was armed cops there so he was certainly a bit surprised so he he came out, he looked around, he saw us and he started walking towards us. Um, but he is an armed suspect as far as I'm concerned. So I uh, flicked my safety catch to fire. I raised my weapon into the aim position, which is basically uh, my, my sight directly on the centre of his chest, as we talked about, the centre mass, the, the area you're most likely to hit under pressure and is most likely to stop a person, not kill them, stop them, but unfortunately, the downside, as we discussed again, of stopping someone with a, with a shot to the centre mass is that, you know, he is going to die. So safety catch on fire, finger on the trigger, I'm loaded, made ready. So all I've got to do is pull that trigger. But at the time, I've also got to make sure that I'm never, ever moving with my finger on the trigger. I, I maintain that sight picture and that I'm still keeping the bead, you know, the sight of the weapon on the centre of his chest. And I'm shouting out to him the challenge, you know, arm police, stand still obviously a lot more uh, aggressively and louder than I'm saying now, but uh, I'm arm police, stand still, show me your hands. And he's come out already with his hands up in a sort of classic position. I can see his palms of his hands, they're facing towards me. Um, we'd initially move, but don't forget the second I start moving, I've got to remember briefly to take my finger off the trigger because, again, the last thing you want to do is you know, have a little trip or something while your finger's on the trigger we got to within about, I suppose, 15 metres of him, which is quite a decent distance. You know, we've got some reaction time there, should he run at us? But equally, we can see what's going on. And I'm up in the aim position. My colleague is standing on my shoulder or just behind my shoulder. He's got his baton out and his baton is resting on the top of his shoulder in the sort of relaxed position. So you can see it's there, but he's ready to deal with. Now, what we don't have is both of us shouting at him because... Firstly, as the armed officer, I need to know what I'm telling him, and know, need to know what to expect. But equally, with two of us excitedly shouting at him, you don't want him to get confused, or listen to one and not the other, or whatever. So that's why we briefly discussed: I'll do the talking, I'll do the pointing, you know, you do the unarmed and the cuffing, and the arresting. So we're like, yeah, okay. So he's complied, he's done exactly what he's told and he's stopped where he was, we're 15 metres away, I'm on aim, finger on the trigger, trying to control my breathing, which at this point is obviously quite difficult because you can imagine your adrenaline is up somewhat. And he's got, um, he's wearing jeans and a t-shirt, I think, and then he's got a thin jacket on top. Of course, what the jacket does is means I can't see his waistband. So I say to him, very carefully, very slowly reach down Get the edges of your jacket, pick your jacket up, lift your jacket up, and then slowly turn 180 degrees. Now, the problem with saying that, as we later learned, is that some people don't know what 180 degrees is. So you're better off saying very slowly spin in a circle, turn in a circle, or something like that. Because people go, What? What's 180? What do you mean? You know, they don't understand. Because don't forget, in some cases, they're under a lot of stress and pressure as well. Um, So that's exactly what he did. He understood, he lifted his jacket and he turned around very slowly so we could check his waistband of his trousers. We wanted to make sure nothing was in there. Sure enough, and to my horror, as he turned around and was facing pretty much directly away from us, I can see a black handgun, the butt of a black handgun tucked in his waistband at the back. And straight away, I was thinking, you idiot, why have you come out with that? Why did you not just leave it in the dress? Because now we're split seconds away from from having a really serious scenario here you know if he goes for that even with the best intentions of thinking oh i'll just put this gun on the floor or whatever what am i to think you know and this is the scenario that armed cops have faced you know through the years imagine if you know and unfortunately we have seen this in london where someone has been in possession of a handgun that they've chosen to for example throw away so the police don't find it as they draw that weapon what is the armed cop to think you've got a split second to make that decision is he drawing the weapon to shoot me is he throwing it away and if he goes to throw it away quite possibly as it comes across his body and he's literally about to release it from his hand and throw it then it's got to cross you i point at you so in that split second i have to decide is this a throw is this a point you know is he about to point it at me and start firing um really really difficult scenarios luckily the training that we'd had you know prepared us quite well for this and we dealt with this scenario lots and lots of times having said that that's a training scenario you know it's not um you know it's not black and white it's definitely grey because with someone you know drawing a weapon on you you know almost certainly given other circumstances you would be justified in pulling that trigger but obviously that is the absolute last thing you want to do so I said to him, as soon as he turned and I saw it in the back of his waistband, I shouted to him, now stand still, do not move. And I said to him, I have seen that gun. I've seen that gun in the back of your waistband. Do not touch it. Do not move your hands towards it. You know, you really had to spell it out. And I was probably getting a bit more high pitch now because I'm also, you know, at maximum adrenaline levels at this point. So I said to him, you know, do not touch it. Do not go anywhere near it. I've seen it, you know, making it really, really clear. And, you know, I said, nod your head, you know, if you understand me. And he did. He nodded his head. So I said, OK, continue turning and, f- and face us again. So he faced us and he did what he was told. Um, and then what happened was um, I kept the cover on in the arm cover. So I'm still pointing at him. And uh, we've got no point of like uh, updating radios or anything at this point. We're relying on the other cops who are watching this, the unarmed cops from their sort of containment positions, to keep, you know, the control room updated. Although to be honest with you, I don't care. You know, that's the least of my worries. All I'm worried about is his hands and my finger on that trigger and the sight on his chest. That's pretty much the three things that I worried about at that point. Nothing else mattered. Um so yeah, I kept the aim on. My colleague slowly went forward and he went forward, obviously, from a big sort of circle or an angle so that at no point did he cross in front of my barrel. You know, we've already discussed, I cannot have him in front of me. And um, he's basically walked up to the side of the guy and then he's taken hold of his wrist. And we've explained to him, you're going to be handcuffed, no sudden movements, just keep calm and everything will be fine, you know. Trying to sound convincing, but in my head also thinking, Christ, I hope it's going to be all right. <laughs> I hope he doesn't go for that weapon. Um, so what happens is my colleague like leans across and takes hold of his wrist closest to him. Um, and then he gets the guy to also put his other hand across towards him. So basically I can still keep that arm cover on him and he can get those handcuffs on without ever getting in my way. And uh, thankfully, we got him handcuffed, although what we didn't want to do is handcuff him to the rear like you normally would, because what that would do is put his hands basically exactly where that gun was. So that's 100% what we didn't want. So he was kind of handcuffed initially to the side. It was a bit of a, a mess, quite frankly. It probably didn't comply and all the rest of it. But this is what I said about, you know, black areas, grey areas, you know, black and white. You know, you you have to adapt and do, you know, what you can... Um, you know the best you can come up with but then that's also why the debriefs are very important afterwards you talk through we did this we did that and somebody says well why did you do that well we didn't put his hands down there we didn't handcuff him to the rear because that would have put his hands right by that gun you know um so but but equally they might say well you could have done this and you'd be like yeah oh, yeah yeah i could have actually you're right you know so very very important the debriefs anyway thankfully we've got our man cuffed And then, um, as soon as the cuffs were on and I was happy he was safe and he was secure, and my pal had a hold of him, I was safety catch on safe. I could lower my weapon and I went forward and then took hold of his hands um, and got hold of, uh, you know, made sure that he was secure and he was out, his hands were away from that gun. While my friend then withdrew the pistol from his waistband and put it to one side so we knew it was safe and then we stepped him away from it. Um, We hadn't had a chance to clear it or make sure it was safe or anything at this point. Then we were able to call forward unarmed cops who basically took our man away. Um, he got arrested somewhere in there for various offences as well. Um, and uh, and then we were able to have a closer look at the weapon. Now, typically, of course, it turned out to be a BB gun. But honestly, you know, if you'd have seen it and if you see these BB guns, they're designed to look as realistic as they can. I mean, you know, if this thing was pointed at you, you'd have no doubt um, that it was a firearm. You know, so... People again say, oh, why didn't they know it was a BB gun when the nasty police shot them? You know, you just can't. You cannot make, you know, you cannot make that decision based on appearances, you know. And unfortunately, if you look on um, the uh, Twitter page of mine or the X or whatever you want to call it now on Police Stories Podcast, you'll see there's a photo on there of um, multicoloured handguns, basically. And it's like which the question I pose is which one is real? And actually, just to ruin it for you, you'll see uh, that they're all real. And people are specifically painting them in almost toy-like colours. And even manufacturers are selling them like that. Um, So, you know, you cannot base it on on colours and things. Because there's been some criticism for, again, the nasty police, armed police, dealing with, you know, kids with toy guns. Well, you know, 14-year-olds are sort of six foot and and 15 stone and if they point a coloured gun at me and I'm armed I'm definitely you know going to be uh very very twitchy to say the least so never an easy job and this is why a lot of cops you know don't don't want to do it basically um but anyway thankfully it was pretty much textbook you know we put the containment on he came out um he was secured we got the weapon back yes it was a bb um, he ended up getting charged with, you know, threatening uh, his partner with the handgun. Um, and and it was all done and dusted, you know, it was fantastic. And pretty much as he was being led away, this plane car came screaming up the road on blues and twos, um, screeched and, and the, you know, the heavy mob, you know, came running out, which was the SFOs, the specialist firearms officers that had just arrived on scene. And we're like, right, brief us, we're taking over, you know, and we were like, oh, well, it's job done, you know, he's been lifted, he's handcuffed, the weapon's been seized, it's down there, we've had a look, it's a BB gun, you know, that's it, there's kind of nothing for you. And <laughs> the look on their face to say that they were disheartened would be an understatement, you know, because equally, you know, they like dealing with with jobs themselves, of course, so... um, but whether it did me any favours going forward whether I got remembered uh, in future and you know because I ended up ultimately as a specialist firearms officer on that unit working with those same people that turned up so whether perhaps it you know put us in or put me in good stead you know and and maybe made them remember me for good reasons and then perhaps it perhaps it helped i don't know anyway first armed incident uh, I was very glad to get it under my belt and going forward we'll uh we'll look at some more stories okay thanks very much for listening take it easy speak to you soon cheers bye